Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it is my great honor to have my dear friend, Kathleen Boyd, with me. Now, Kathleen and I go back a little ways. We met at a very special time in our lives. We were both trying to earn our PhDs. Uh, Life has unfolded very differently than I think what we both expected at that point, but I would say we're both the better for the way life has unfolded. Kathleen has a breadth of experience in the financial planning world. She now works for an organization called XY Planning Network, where she's leading uh, the training of financial planners. She's also a professor at Oklahoma State University. Is that right, Kathleen? Yes. yes. OSU. And she's teaching financial planning. So she swims in the water of financial planning, but she swims in the water of financial planning not so much on your tax strategies, although she's good at that, or your investment strategy, but on the human side of things. And that's why I've invited Kathleen in because she has given tremendous thought to what it means to navigate love and money and all the different relational components. So with that long-winded welcome, Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ed, for that wonderful introduction and for having me on your podcast. This is truly an honor. Absolutely. Well, I am so excited to see you continue to flourish in your own journey of really reshaping the field of financial planning and what we think financial planning means and the scope of what we're doing there. And so, Kathleen, why is the field of financial planning so darn important to you? Yeah, um, because we all have a relationship with money. We all we need money to survive in this capitalistic world. And for the most part, we are brought up, we are raised without any kind of formal education around money. Most schools across the U.S. don't have any requirements to take personal finance or financial literacy education. And so we are left up to our own devices to try to figure it out. And so I got interested in financial planning back in... I would say it started 2006, 2007, when I started watching Susie Orman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of us know that name, Uh uh-huh. Yeah, Susie Orman, if you're familiar with her, she had her own TV show on CNBC, Saturday nights, where, you know, she was inviting the public to call in and ask her questions about money. And I was having my own challenges with money. I was one of those college students who um, was in credit card debt, was having trouble managing it. Um, and I was looking for education and advice. And I happened to stumble across Susie Orman. So she sort of gave me my first taste and first foray into personal finance. Uh, but I really didn't start really getting into it or considering it as a career until about 2012 when I took a financial planning course for fun uh, in grad school. And I had met a financial advisor uh, who is a CFP, Certified Financial Planner, and he worked for Wells Fargo. And he was teaching an intro to financial planning. And I guess he liked my contributions in class. I usually sat up in the front. I was the only student who sat in the front. I was asking really great questions. I was challenging him. And so he pulled me aside one day and he asked, have you ever thought about becoming a financial advisor? And my response was, no, that's not for me. Because what I, my perception of financial advisors is what Susie Orman taught was that financial uh, advisors were salespeople. And for largely, they were. Uh, yeah, right. Susie Orman, if you know her story, the reason why she got into financial planning is because some Merrill Lynch advisor sold her some annuity that she didn't really need. And she ended up losing a lot of money because of that. So mm-hmm. my perception of financial advisors is that they were salespeople. They don't really help people with their money. 
And his response was, well, you know, that, that's not necessarily true. You do have a lot of advisors who are invested in doing real financial planning uh, from a fiduciary perspective. And I think you'd be great at it. You're smart. You have a great personality. You draw people to you. I think this is a career path you should consider. And I was like, okay, just to kind of get him off my back. I was like, oh, I'll think about it. But I still was not convinced. <laughs> but even after the class, he just kept emailing me. Have you thought about what we talked about? Uh, and then he ended up putting a good word for me in at Wells Fargo on their private bank side. So working more with their high net worth institutional clients. Uh, I did uh, one interview with them and they hired me the next day. They said, we want you to come aboard. And so before you knew it, I was part of this two-year post-MBA program with a cohort of other people from Yale, from Cornell, like these uh, Ivy League universities learning the ins and outs of managing investment portfolios for high net worth clients. Wow. See, this is what's so fun about doing these podcast interviews. I always learn new things about my friends. So yeah. <laughs> this is incredible. So you're you go from 2006, kind of struggling college student with some credit card debt, looking for answers. You stumble on Susie Orman. Her ideas start helping you make financial progress, presumably. You start to get a little more organized around your finances, get debt paid off. Now you go on and work on your MBA. Yeah. And, and they happen to have a financial planning class. You're like, that looks like fun. I'll do that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Exactly. And then you meet this Wells Fargo advisor who's talking you up and pursuing you and gets you enrolled. It's shaping the direction of where you're going professionally. And so now you're working with high net worth, ultra high net worth folks. What are we talking? Million dollars plus in investment assets? We're, we're talking 50 million or more. Oh, excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Ultra high net worth. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. So um, do, are they still humans? Are they still humans? Ultra high network. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm saying that cheeky. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, not everyone has a chance to knowingly talk to someone that has that kind of wealth. I don't know. I don't want to be presumptuous. Maybe you've <laughs> been talking to people that had $50 million in wealth since you were two years old. I don't. But what was that experience like to be talking with folks that have $50 million or more? Intimidating for me personally. Um, uh -huh. Given my background, I come from a low income background. I come from living in public housing. Um, we didn't have a lot of money or resources. I know what it's like to be food insecure. Um, I know what it's like to be evicted multiple times, to be living in women's shelters. And so to go from that to now advising multi-million dollar clients was intimidating. Uh, it was overwhelming. I, I questioned whether I belonged here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There were yeah. a lot of challenges that came with it. Absolutely. In some relative and probably different way, right? I, I can remember my first times being at Vanguard Mutual Funds and I got onto the high net worth client service line and those were for clients that had a million dollars or more with Vanguard. And you know, looking back, I don't think I really understood this, how many stories were floating around in my head about what that was going to be like. I was just so terrified to talk to these wealthy people. I had mm -hmm. such negative associations about what it was going to be like. And by the, for me, at least in that experience, it was by and large pretty positive. What was that experience like for you talking and interacting with, with people from such a wildly different social class background than yeah. your own starting place? That's a really great question. Um, for the most part, most of the, the, the clients were nice, but you did get those few clients who would ask things like, they, they would ask one of the senior level advisors on the team, is she really going to be managing my money? Or, uh, <laughs> or they oh, would call me out during client meetings, like target me and ask me certain questions. And like, the, or the, the lead advisor would step in and try to answer them on my behalf. And they're like, no, I want to hear from her because they were trying to size me up to see what I knew and what I didn't know and if I really was qualified to be there in the first place. So uh, is that, do you think that's a primary difference between your experience of the world and money services and mine as a white, I'm as a white absolutely, male? Absolutely, absolutely. As a white male, you are perceived as automatically competent, 
uh, as opposed to someone like me, a, a dark-skinned black woman, probably somebody who they're not used to seeing outside of right. TV or entertainment purposes. They're like, who are you? Why are you, why are you here? What are your qualifications? How can you help me? You know, it, it's just so amazing. I mean, I've, my awareness of that reality is continuing to increase in the meaning and what that's like just grows. And, and it's because of these types of conversations. And yet you said something, Kathleen, that's so interesting is that I, I'm given the benefit of the doubt, which mm-hmm. I, I fully agree and see no, no qualms there. Mm-hmm. And yet my own internal dialogue has so for so long been, I'm not qualified to be here. Mm-hmm. Right. So externally I have approval and acceptance that I belong you know, pretty much anywhere I go, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of the cultural benefit of being a white male. Yeah. Is, but internally, how I feel, the struggle with the sense of belonging and appropriateness for being there, given that, you know, for me at least, uh, growing up with a blue-collar electrician father and a mother uh, that was a teacher's aide, like, and kind of my sense and internalization of my place in social class, right? And And yeah. you can't, that's one of those things that, you can't fully see a person's social class background from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. You have to know the person to know that background. And so it's this, the view from within ourselves and the view from outside of ourselves. And like, I always experience you as so confident. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that I'm so drawn to about you. I'm like, she just rocks. She just owns her space. And I just, I love being around that. And so, you know, I, I just, I don't know, I'm meandering now. So just bringing myself back around Kathleen, this, this journey into money, you're at Wells Fargo, you're working with these ultra high net worth clients. They're really questioning you way harder than anybody else. I imagine that doesn't feel great. No, it doesn't. I, I really struggle. You mentioned confidence. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad I come off as confident now. But starting there at Wells Fargo, I was the least confident in my career than I had ever been. Um, and didn't really have anyone to talk to. Uh, about it. I could not talk to my boss as being a white male. He's not, I didn't really feel like he's someone who could relate to the feelings that I was feeling. Um, There were also a lot of negative narratives that he was spouting, you know, things like, I want you to dress more like a white woman or um, yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of harmful narratives. (laughs) coming from that space because there's, there's a certain image, there's a certain persona when you're working with that level of clientele that they expect you to have. Mm, Sure. (sighs) Yeah. The just, I guess is the word, the word that's coming to mind is the microaggressions. Yeah. Yeah. Is that well said? That's what we're talking about. Right. And and it's kind of, I, I, it's a multi whammy for you, right? It's, it's about your gender. It's about the color of your skin and it's about social class. Yeah. And, and, and sexuality, I would add to that, which is hidden. Yes. Right. In the same way that you, you mentioned about how class can be hidden. You can't outwardly tell what class somebody is in unless they tell you the same with sexuality. Um, Like most in the office did not know that I'm also queer. I identify as queer it wasn't until I actually came out in an op-ed in my local newspaper and my boss got a hold of it <laughs> that that cat got let out of the bag. And then that brought on a host of other problems. <laughs> oh, oh. 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 I, I mean, the, yeah. we're laughing today about it, but I, I imagine there's been so much pain before the laughter has come around these being able to be fully you in the world that you live in and in, in the mm-hmm. pl- spaces you go into. I mean, this is, you know, I think such an essential part of our overall well-being, and, and as a society, we still really struggle to accept people and create space for them to allow all the, the facets of themselves to be present and acceptable. And yet that's really the, the heart of, of health and well-being, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Agree. So what happened after Wells Fargo? So after Wells Fargo, so that was a two-year program. And so either you have two choices, they bring you on full-time as more of a permanent role, or you go off and do your own thing. 
they offered me a role somewhere in Seattle, um, and I didn't want to live in Seattle. I'm, I have to live in tropical type of climates. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I talk yeah. like, we black people, we are a tropical people. We like sun, we like warmth. <laughs> so I decided I'm going back to Southern California, where I'm originally from, and that's exactly what I did. I, I moved back to L.A., the L.A. area. Um, and kind of started over. I didn't know anyone from the industry here. Um, and so what I did, and, and to this day, I don't know how I got wind of the FPA, but I started looking up local FPA chapters and Orange County has a really huge, a very active FPA chapter. FPA for your listeners stands for Financial Planning Association. Uh, it's the largest association of, finance, of financial advisors and financial professionals in the country. And they have different chapters across the country. One of them is in Orange County. And the Orange County is one of the largest and most active in the country. Uh, so I decided to go to a new member breakfast. They were very welcoming and inviting. Um, I found a mentor there. I started serving on the advocacy committee where we would go to state uh, and federal um, capitals and we would talk with legislators about policy for financial literacy, for uh, consumer protection around finances and such. And that's when I really got introduced to the independent RIA model, registered investment advisory firm. Um, I didn't want to go back to a Wells Fargo type structure or, or company where it's really uh, all about sales uh, and, and asset gathering. I wanted to do real financial planning for clients. Um, so my mentor encouraged me to pursue my CFP and start looking for roles uh, with smaller kind of boutique independent firms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I worked for a number of RAAs across Southern California And then I realized that I had a passion for education. Um, I wanted to have um, the same impact on the next generation as that advisor who I met in that financial planning course had on me. And so that was the impetus for pursuing the PhD program. And also understanding when I was working with high net worth clients, and I, I meant to mention this earlier, so I would like, yeah. love to talk about that now. Yeah, is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, also in client meetings, it was standard to have a licensed therapist in these meetings. And financial therapy really started in the pri- on the private banking side, on the ultra high net worth side of the industry. Yes, yes, absolutely. This It's a little known thing. I mean, in the general public, but also I think within deeper in the industry, but mm-hmm. um, those ultra high net worth services have had psychologists and therapists working in there because, because why do they, let me ask you, why do they have a therapist working in there? Because especially when you get to that level of money and wealth accumulation, uh, there are loads of challenges and issues that arise, especially within families. Um, oftentimes you're going to be working with clients who have family businesses and they're trying to figure out succession plans uh, and there might be animosity or challenges around that. Um, There might be challenges or animosity around um, who you're going to gift money to or who you're going to leave money to when you pass away. And so helping clients navigate those conversations by having a licensed psychologist or clinical psychologist on staff to help support that and facilitate those conversations can really be valuable. So did you have the chance to sit in there on some of those meetings as the psychologist was facilitating family conversations? Yes. Yes. What did you see? What did you hear? What was what stood out to you that was both familiar to you from your own understanding and lived experience of being in a family? I mean, we're all creatures of families. We've all been raised by some form of family. Mm -hmm. And so what parallel processes or similar processes did you see and recognize and what was different? Mm -hmm. What was different is we almost rarely talked about the technical aspects of financial planning. It was more going back into the history. What was the family history Um, going into relationship history, 
um, really getting digging into internal feelings about certain matters and just asking really pointed questions to kind of draw out more of their feelings and less so the finances. Because a lot of the challenges from the outset, it might look like money problems, but they're really deeper than money problems. It could be familiar, familial issues, familial challenges um, that it just have not come to the surface yet. And so I have seen psychologists ask questions and really work to bring those issues to the surface and address those issues first. And usually when you address those issues, then the money issue kind of solves itself in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're speaking my love language and that's what I, I work on with my clients all the time. And it's, I mean, look, it's self-gratifying to hear somebody else describe and affirm what I've been doing or trying to do. Mm. And right. I think that what we're waking up to and have known, I don't know, is that the experience of living in a family is an incredibly complex and dynamic experience. But if we simplify it, hurt feelings exist in families a lot. Oh, yeah. And hurt feelings are the saboteur of making shared collaborative financial decisions. From my, from my perspective, right? And whether you're living in poverty or in incredible affluence, you're, and this is why I asked that earlier, well, there's still humans up there, right? Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, as humans, we can get our feelings hurt, independent of how much money we have. Certainly. And we also struggle as humans to really know how to repair when we hurt each other's feelings. Mm-hmm. To even recognize it for many of us is a, is a huge hurdle, yeah. let alone being able to repair. And so that's where, you know, I think for me, at least that universal theme is it doesn't really matter how much money your family has. The health of your family is, is so important. The, the functioning, the way you interact with each other is so important. Sorry, I've kind of trailed off on what I'm trying to get at. Um, I think sometimes people, individuals and families believe if we just have enough money, then we'll be okay as a family. Mm -hmm. And yet you you very clearly saw the families had more than enough money, but they still didn't have love and connection in their, their family or not deep enough and close enough. Yeah, no, exactly. Or they could still have overspending issues or just issues managing money. I think that's a large misconception as well, is that people who have money or wealth are great at managing their money. (laughs) And you need to be careful about that because you could also be implying that those who don't have a lot of money don't know how to manage money. And I would say as somebody who came from a low-income background, I have seen the variety of ways that my mother stretched a dollar, tried to to manage just the little that she had. I actually think low-income people are really great at managing just the little that they have, and we can learn a lot from them. (laughs) I I, I love it. I love it. And I think that there's some real wisdom there, right, is the, the constraint of resources almost forces you to really be aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly there are people that are tuned out and living in poverty and not paying attention. Yeah. Right. Like we're not saying all poor people are really great money managers and we're not saying all wealthy people are really bad, it, but it's both and, or seeing the other side of it is mm-hmm. the assumptions we have about people in different social class positions are, need to be stretched and opened up. Absolutely. And, and I've heard high income clients ask, why do I feel broke every month? It's really not about how much money you make. I mean, of course, you need to make enough money to be able to support yourself, to be able to save for your future. Right. But your ability to manage your money well has nothing, almost nothing to do with how much money you make. Because I have worked with people who make 500000 to a million dollars a year, and they complain to me, why do I feel broke every month? How do you address that with them? Mm-hmm. As a financial planner, of course, we're, we're looking at budgeting, how they're spending their money, what's important to them, how are they prioritizing what's important to them. But often I feel like it goes deeper than money. Oh, yeah. And that's where I feel like financial therapy, having a background in financial therapy uh, could be really helpful for financial advisors and planners. It, uh, oftentimes I find is something deeper that's going on. 
that we as advisors, we just don't have the skill sets to really help clients navigate through. I'm really glad that this is coming up. This is a loaded subject for me and something mm-hmm. I, I have, I'm still working through as I've been through this, this crazy journey. Um, but I appreciate you naming and in a, in a very honoring way, it's not the financial planner's responsibility or training to work with your psychological response to money. Mm-hmm. Right. I think what I heard you say, Kathleen is like, I'm happy to help you look at your spending and help you even work on categorizing and seeing where all the money is going so you can objectively know. Mm-hmm. But if that do- information doesn't help you then get clear and feel like you're not broke or you know where your money's going, then it's a, there's something else going on psychologically that needs therapeutic support. And that's where it crosses over into financial therapy. And so for the folks that are listening are mostly going to be clients of financial planning. And if you're going to your planner and saying, I feel broke, or I don't know why this is happening, or I just feel overwhelmed by it. And your financial planner is doing what a financial planner is trying to do is run the analysis on the numbers and let you know what your options are. If that information doesn't help alleviate that psychological distress, that's your sign that it's time for financial therapy. Exactly. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I think it's good as advisors to have the financial therapy knowledge so we can identify those barriers or when clients are getting stuck and and then figure out what to do about it. I don't know that we are equipped to play therapist, to be quite honest, even with the emergence of some of these designations, like the certified financial therapist, level one, two, three, which is a relatively new designation. Even with that, there's a conflict of interest when an advisor is also trying to play therapist. Uh, And so I am a firm believer is I think we should all have the education, the educational background to understand when the barriers are disenabling clients to really achieve what they're setting out to achieve and to be able to refer them out to an actual licensed therapist who has the skill set and experience to help these clients. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is really important. This is what a lot of people are listening to this show for to sort through what does financial therapy mean? Where, where's the crossover with financial planning? And yes, I, I mean, just own it as the president of the financial therapy association, I, I support the development of the field of financial therapy, and it's wonderful that both planners and therapists are looking at this. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the consumer advocacy side of it is you also need to understand who your professional is and what their actual educational background is. Yes. Because, and I'm going to speak specifically to financial therapy, and this is with great respect for the whole community. If you go to a financial planner that has the CFT, more than likely they are going to be an expert in financial planning. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have some knowledge on therapeutic skills and interventions that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. But their ability to get super deep into the psychological issues and process is going to be more limited because of their professional education. No Correct. fault of their own. No, and, and the limits of the certification process. Conversely, if you go to a therapist that is a certified financial therapist... If they don't also have a CFP background, they're going to be very good at understanding the psychological processes and potential emotional relational dynamics around it. But they may miss some of the more objective information that's shaping or influencing or knowing how to ask those questions about having good financial processes and systems in place to make sure your financial life is actually well organized Mm -hmm. because that's not their technical area of competence. So, if you're a listener and you're trying to sort through where do I get help, it is the waters do get a little muddy. Um, yeah. But I think it's continuing to ask questions, being open to and recognizing very 
unlikely that you're going to find just one professional that will help you cross all the bridges that you need to cross. You may need to work across multiple different professionals to cross the bridges that you need. So yeah, it's the same. Is it the medical field? Yes. You have that primary care physician who's typically the quarterback, the, the first point of contact, and then whatever is outside their scope, they're referring to various specialists to help support you with their needs. Financial advisors, financial planners should be operating the exact same way. If you're coming to them for your finances, they should be your primary point of contact. Uh, but as they assess what your needs are, what potential barriers or challenges you're experiencing, they should be referring you out to various specialists to get that additional support, including therapists. That's why that, that's a really great question to ask. If you're looking for a financial planner or financial advisor, ask them. Do you work with a therapist or do you, you know, have a therapist on retainer or who you can reach connect to in the event that, you know, issues come up and then see what they say? Uh, oh, man. Yes. <laughs> man, I'm glad you're on this podcast because you know, this is something I, you know, when I talk with planners and I'm coaching and consulting with them, I'm always te- trying to teach them, look, at the beginning of your onboarding process, you tell all of your clients, when the time comes and is needed, we comfortably make referrals to accountants, estate planning attorneys, and mental health professionals, therapists, as needed. Mm-hmm. Boy, their eyes roll back in their head when I say, you just roll it into that. They, m- many financial planners are still very afraid to have mental health conversations with their clients and to normalize that. So yeah. if you're on your own mental health journey or have had mental health issues and you want to work with a financial planner that's comfortable talking about that, not treating it, but acknowledging talking about hearing about how it's impacting that you have a responsibility to also ask the planner. And, and this is putting that back on, on the shoulders of the client son. Mm-hmm. So it's a mutual responsibility. Kathleen, as, as we're going through this conversation and I'm monitoring the time, before we started the show today, I, I asked you, Kathleen, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to work through? And you brought up a really big subject. And I want to just open that can of worms. And yeah. we are not going to put the worms back in, but we're just going to open it okay. up. <laughs> and it's and it's this intersection of love and money. And you, I think you said so kindly, as you do, um, Ed, I think your view of love and money is too narrow. And I think I want to really expand that and open that up on your show. Can we do that? And I said, all right, let's do it, Kathleen. So this is that time in the show where you're going to open the can of worms of love and money and how broad and big that can really get to be. Yeah. So, you know, often when we talk about love and money, it's in the context of couples and even more so married couples, because as a society, that's what we value. Uh, We value couples. We value married people over single people. Uh, But rarely do we talk about love and money in the context of single people, because single people love too. We might not be married or we might not be part of a committed couple or relationship, but we still have people we love uh, and we still have things that we'd have to navigate with people we love as it relates to money. Um, One of the things I was talking with Ed about is single people are often ignored in these conversations about money, even though we are the largest demographic here in the U.S. Um, There's about 128 million single people in our country. Uh, There's about 200, I think it's 256 million adults in the U.S. So single people represent almost half of the U.S. adult population. And I imagine that that number is just going to grow as social attitudes around relationships and marriage continue to change and evolve. Um, There is uh, a word called singleism. I don't know if you've heard of it, Ed. Uh, no, I haven't. And, you know, I'm going to just, right. Like my whole little world has been focused on like, how do I keep married people together? How do I keep them married? How do I keep them happy? How do I keep them together? Yo, yeah. There's other people out there in the world, but married people, how do I keep them together? That that's been, so yes, thank you for you bringing me out of my little bubble and expanding yeah. this. And, and I want to come back to this phrase real quick that you say, I think you said single people love to, mm-hmm. and it, it's so self-evident and obvious as soon as you say it, but I think it has so much power. Right, because part of the human condition, from from my perspective, is to love, mm-hmm. right? And the experience of loving shapes so much of how we live and orient our life and navigate our relationships, which then obviously is going to intersect with money, which is such a part of our life too. So really love and money is a topic for all people. 
all, all backgrounds, all religions, all classes, all gender identities, all, all the, all the ide identities we can come up with. Yeah. Right. That's what I think you're saying, Kathleen. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you were saying we're at 120 million people that are single, mm -hmm. 200 and something plus total adults in the U.S. And we've got this word singleism. So mm -hmm. tell me about it. Yeah, so singleism refers to both the social and institutional discrimination single people face simply because of their marital status. And I want to give credit to the researcher who coined the word. Her name is Dr. Bella DePaulo. She's a Harvard-trained social psychologist. She teaches at UC Santa Barbara. And she coined the term singleism, and she's really been pioneering it because she has found that while we're seeing these interesting and significant social shifts around relationships and marriage, the policy and public perception around it is not changing. We see yeah. that married people continue to be valued more than single people. Uh, and even in the laws, I read somewhere that there are over 7,000 laws that financially benefit married people to the detriment of single people. Uh, and yet, from a financial planning perspective, we're talking about things like tax laws, being able to file your tax returns jointly, to uh, being able to leave your Social Security benefit if you die, leaving your Social Security benefit to your spouse. Or even while you're alive, your spouse can claim part of your Social Security benefit. As a single person, if I have a friend that I dearly love, um, who I want to leave my social security benefit to, I cannot do that. Uh, if I want to leave it to my mother who is financially struggling in the event that I pass away, I can't do that. And so part of the issue here is from a federal government perspective is how we define family um, and, and broadening up the opportunity to allow people that we also love to get the financial benefits, the same financial benefits that a partnered or a married couple also have, especially now that we're seeing this trend, less and less people are marrying, less and less people are deciding not to be in a partnership. We're also seeing the emergence of what, what I call LAT, I don't know if you've heard of LAT couples, L-A-T, living apart together. So you may be in a committed relationship or maybe in a partnership, but you've decided, I don't want to live with that partner. I don't want to combine finances. Uh, I just want to focus on enjoying my partner, but I'm keeping everything separate. I have not heard of that phrase. Uh, there's a whole lot I need to introduce you oh, to. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, as always, Kathleen, there's, you know, and, and look, you know, like I'm going to own it, right? Uh, I have a, a strong preference bias leaning towards, and this is, I mean, I'll, all of my collective history, I'm sure religion plays a role in this, uh, even with my own religious standings having shifted quite a lot. Um, look, you know, I'm married. I enjoy the benefits of being married. I work with married people. That's what I, you know, like in my own brain is normative, good and healthy. Mm. And I think, you know, what's, what's I want to hold space for is, that what I see as good, normal, and healthy is not the only view of what's good, normal, and healthy. And this is where I think, you know, maybe we turn to, we're turning to science more and more to help us understand what does it mean to flourish and live as a human? And I, I think it seems to me there's kind of multiple definitions or ways of doing it. There's not one right way to live a good life and flourish. Like the married life is not the best life. Right. But that's not the narrative that we're hearing. The narrative that we're hearing is married people are happier than single people. The Wall Street Journal the other day reported that married people are more wealthy than single people. And so we're hearing these narratives, really problematic narratives, that married people inherently have better lives and more financially better off than single people. And I, and I want to push back and dispel that. Well, so... I mean, we've both studied statistics to varying degrees, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's the problem with the way that these statistics get reported, is that 
and I'm not an expert on statistics. So any of my listeners that are, you can send me an email and say, Ed, you totally flubbed that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but when we say statistically on the, I think what gets missed is statistically on the whole, maybe the findings point to married people are ha happier or have more wealth. But when we say that in absolute terms, mm -hmm. we exclude a lot of people that are single and wealthy and perfectly happy. Oh, yeah. We, we exclude a lot of, when we say, uh, on the whole, white people are more wealthy than black people. Well, what, yes, maybe statistically, but there's a large population of wealthy African-American or black people. Mm -hmm. Right? So we have to be very thoughtful about the language we're using because the language we use, as you're saying, creates the narrative of what's dominant or right. Right. So, yeah. So the, so the myth, part of the myth that you're busting is... What? Part of the myth that I'm busting is that single people, being married doesn't necessarily mean you are inherently happier or wealthier. That um, It doesn't inherently, yes. Right, exactly, inherently. Single, you can be happy single. We're seeing the data showing us now more and more people are choosing to stay single. And so how do we make sure that attitudes and policies are changing to evolve with the new times. I had mentioned before some of the financial benefits that married people do mm -hmm. experience, like being able to file taxes jointly. Right. That's actually pretty rare. We, the U.S. is one as a handful, only a handful of countries around the world that actually allow that. Canada does not allow married couples to file taxes jointly. Many countries in Europe do not allow married couples to file jointly. So can you, I mean, this is opening me up and I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to have you back for another interview. I mean, yeah. see, I told y'all listeners, Kathleen has done a lot of thinking, a lot of reading to, to work through this stuff. So that's, I mean, that's why I have great guests on here is because, you know, I can't think of all the things. So, so pragmatically tax time comes around, you're in Canada, you're married. If I, let's just, I'm making numbers up. I, I made $60,000 this year. My wife made $150,000 a year. I go off and file my taxes based on my income and I get taxed on that 60,000. Mm -hmm. She goes and files her taxes independently and then she gets taxed on 150. So she may have a higher effective tax rate than me. Correct. Interesting. Correct. So when you file jointly, that's the, the benefit of filing jointly is that higher, that higher income spouse has the potential to lower their effective tax rate. Yeah. Um, because of their spouse has a lower income, essentially. So when you file together, you are more likely to pay less taxes together as you were, as opposed to if you were filing separately. And we, when we think about mm. th that, when we think about filing taxes jointly and where that came from, that started back in the early 1900s where things were, were radically different then. It, it was more common to be in a household where the man was the breadwinner, either the breadwinner or the sole, the sole income earner partner, right. or made significantly more than the spouse. And so it was beneficial for him. And it was really to appease wealthy white men. Let, let's just yeah, be honest sure, about that. Sure, of course, yeah. Um, and to help them minimize their tax liability. We're living in a different day and age now. As I mentioned before, we've got more single people in this country now more than ever. We're also seeing dual income uh, households where both partners or both spouses make high incomes. And so that uh, the, the, the idea behind filing jointly, the reasons for it, they don't apply anymore. And it's actually now more harmful for single moms Okay, who are filing taxes for single people who don't have children to file taxes? I should not pay more in taxes simply because I'm not having government sanctioned sex. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All I heard was government sanctioned yeah. sex. Yes, yes. Uh I hear you. I, I mean, I hear you. I'm startled by that and I appreciate it and all of the above. <laughs> and this this really gets What's amazing to me is when we start off and we go back in the journey, your journey, like mine, right? As younger people, we, we, we're starting out just trying to figure out how to manage money. Susie Orman for you, Dave Ramsey for me, a couple other folks, mm -hmm. right? And it was like, well, I need to figure out how to budget. 
so that I don't have credit card debt. And then one thing leads to another. Well, I need to figure out investments. And now I'm in an MBA. And now I know financial planning. And now, like, I think about all these social issues that impact my experience of my personal finances. Yeah. And so there's this is a big world here, folks. There's a lot of moving pieces to your personal financial life and journey. And I would be remiss, Kathleen, before this interview is over, one of the things that you introduced me to that just kind of knocked me off my rocker when we were back at Kansas State is you asked me some questions about polyamorous relationships and what do I think about them. And honestly, I think I had never even heard of the term polyamory before we met. And so that's a community that you know some about, you've done some research on, you've communicated with. And when we talk about love is love and loving people is a big concept and the intersection of love and money is a big concept, this is another slice of that pie, right? So can we just spend a few minutes camped out on what's happening in the polyamory community around love and money and what are some of the unique needs there that are going on? So for folks that hear this are in that environment or know someone that's in that environment can just be more informed. Yeah, absolutely. The polyamory, the polyamorous community is severely underserved by our industry. Um, there's still a lot of stigma around being polyamorous. Uh, it is often conflated with the term polygamy, but there are mm. actually two different things. Polygamy is more biblical based, more religious based, uh, and it's more patriarchal base. It, 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 it's, it's heavily dependent on one man choosing several wives. Sure. Um, and, and But women are not allowed to choose several husbands. Uh, that's the difference between polyamory is you can have several romantic partners. You can be a man that has several women as a, par- as a romantic partner. You can be a woman that has several men as a romantic partner. You can be a queer woman that has several women as romantic partners or a gay man that has several male romantic partners. And there are different types of structures. You have triads. uh, So you've got like a a primary partner, primary partnership. So two people and then one person in the mix. Uh You've got quads. So each partner in the primary structure also have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You have what is called a V. So you have one person in the relationship, they're dating two people separately, and the other spouse or partner might not be dating anyone. There's polycules, there's hierarchical polys, there's just so many structures uh, within the polyamorous community. And so as you can imagine, money and finances can also be a complex issue, especially because we know that there are power dynamics especially when you have the primary partner versus the other partners who, who you're prioritizing versus who you're not prioritizing. You have the nesting partner. This is who you live with. Could be a primary partner, could not be a primary partner. And so how do you go about managing finances in a way that is fair with the litany of structures that are out there in the polyamorous world? Probably another, this is another podcast. Like we could spend an entire episode you know, on poly yeah. finances. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right. But I mean, I think right the way that we grow and get comfortable with diversity in the reality of how people live their lives is by incrementally having conversations. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I appreciate your generosity and willingness to have the energy. Let me just stop and say, thank you for introducing me further to what's happening in this community and the, what stands out to me is that there are so many potential constellations within this this community and people that um, orient their, this is not just about sexuality, but this is about relational configuration, right? Mm-hmm. And those are probably two different things conceptually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, and I'm curious, and this is completely anecdotal, something flying off my head is, I have heard from sex therapists that people that are into alternative sexualities often have hmm, more explicit conversations about what they're into or not into mm-hmm. when they're like fetishes are involved and stuff like that because they want to respect the boundaries of what's happening in their sexual expression with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas I think in mainline conventional and even these words are problematic on some level, but right. If we assume like I'm, 
I'm a heterosexual white person. You're a heterosexual white person. We're coming together. We have all these social norms about how we're supposed to go. So we don't even talk about what our, any of our expectations are. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I'm working through is on the whole, and I'm sure there's diversity here is do people that enter into polyamorous relationships more effectively talk about the power structure and the nature of the relationship and who's in and who's out and where you're at within the relationship to each other? You have to. You have to. You have to. I don't know how you have a successful poly relationship without having those conversations. It requires even more. Be more explicit and declarative about. Exactly. And that's why I tell when people say, oh, poly seems attractive because now I can have sex with all of these multiple people. <laughs> and it's like, no, they, they look at it as, so, as relationships that are easier or, or more fun. <laughs> But it actually requires a lot more relationship skills, a lot more communication skills if you're going to go that path than compared to um, historically traditional, and that could even be a problematic phrase, relationship structures, heteronormativity, or um, what's the word that I'm looking for? When you decide that you're going to just date that one and only person. Exclusive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, it requires more relationship skills. Right. And I, I think, you know, the what we can both agree to is for any healthy relationship, the more explicit and clear you can be about what your expectations are in the relationship, probably the better. Yeah. Right. Because when we enter into intimate relationships or even friendships, what we want out of it, what we're hoping to get out of it, what we what we can contribute, what we're expecting the other person to contribute, all play into the quality of the relationship. Absolutely. And so no matter what relationship you're in, those are the things that I'm, I'm always thinking about as a relational therapist is how much, and I think this really goes back to Kathleen, what you're saying about the, the psychologist is with the families and the wealth and just asking them, well, what was happening here? What happened here? Because oftentimes the hurt feelings come from unmet expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things done with a misunderstanding And so maybe that's the core message as we wrap up today is having healthy relationships is about being clear about who you are, what you're expecting of yourself and the other person, your person or persons you're being in relationship with. Absolutely, Kathleen, this has been a powerful interview as I knew it would be. And I'm just going to open the door wide open and say, I hope you'd come back and be a guest again. Absolutely. I feel like we have much more to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ed, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm ready for another. Yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. Kathleen, it has been a delight as always to spend time in your company. And I look forward to our future conversations. Likewise. Thank you again for having me, Ed. Absolutely. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Ed.